Zoning ordinances seek to ensure that both churches and schools are built in a safe distance from porn houses, bars, and clubs. Churches need to flourish far away from the seduction of Hollywood and Las Vegas nights. The only way to live a godly life is to build high walls around your church and family. Many believers adopt this isolationist mentality, but the risen Christ in the first century planted a church at the foot of Satan's throne, in the heart of the city where the imperial cult flexed its muscles. I'm Mary Wordson, and this is Truth Encounter, a program committed to challenging you to discover the true biblical Jesus. The Lord powerfully used this message to cause our church family to face the challenge of living in a world, but not being of the world. Let's join Dave in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 and following, and learn about Pergamum, the church built at Satan's throne. When I think of where a church should be located, I think of that marvelous scene in Vermont, and that's where a church ought to be. In fact, when you're working together with the body of Christ and they get excited about founding a church, you think of where should we put our church? Where should the church be? And we know that in business, that location is everything. In fact, I've heard business people say that the most important three things in business are location, location, location. As you're thinking about getting a new business going or a new school or whatever it might be. But we have this idea that the church needs to be in just the right location. In fact, we even have ordinances that say that a church and a school cannot be built. In other words, there can't be like porno houses that come in. There can't be bars that come in. There can't be seedy businesses that come in. They have to be a certain distance away from the church and the school, right? Because we don't want that sin to be that close to the church. But I want to talk about a church that Jesus founded. And you know where Jesus founded it? He founded it right where Satan's throne is located. When Dr. Swendall spoke to us at our 25th anniversary, he, he summarized the message of the church of Pergamum, and he talked about a church that was built right in the heart of where Satan's authority, that's what his throne means, right in the heart of where Satan is located. I think of one of my friends, Dr. Charles Lyons. Charles went to Chriswell College, went to Southwestern, went on from there and wanted to go into the pastorate, and you'd think of being a good Southern Baptist boy, man, you want to go to Alabama, or you want to go to Mississippi, or you want to go to Georgia, because that's where they really understand what it means to be an evangelical Bible-believing, Bible-toting, gospel-preaching, Baptist preacher. But Charles was led of the Lord to go to the heart of Chicago. He lives in a neighborhood. When you walk out the front of his church, there's two or three crack houses right across the street. If you look to the left, there's several porno houses, and on and on it goes. In other words, Armitage Baptist in the heart of Chicago is built where Satan's throne is. And I want you to start to reverse your thinking. Some of you have an idea that what we want to do with this Bible proclaiming good news is we want to be sure to be this city that's up on a hill. We want to stay way away from where the people are sinning. In fact, I'm reminded of some missionaries that they were in another country and they, they were at an, an ocean front. They built a beautiful church way up on the bluffs. 
But during the summer months, thousands of tourists would come to this beautiful beach. And they'd be, they'd be out there sunbathing, and they'd be out there playing their music. They'd be out there vacationing. And this church would conduct its services way up on this bluff in this beautiful, beautiful little chapel. But hardly anybody was there. I mean, who in the world is going to go to church when you're on vacation, when you got the most beautiful beach in the world, right about 100 feet down the bluff, right there, the beautiful ocean's rolling in. A missionary friend of mine went to that church and said, what are you guys doing up here in the hill? There's nobody up here in the hill. You're inviting people to come up on the hill. The action is down off the hill on the beach. And they said, oh, no. We can't go out with those. Man, there's Europeans down there that dress kind of. They hardly dress at all. And there's suds flowing down there. And there's guys that bring those ghetto busters right here to the beach. And they penetrate this horrible, beautiful surroundings. They penetrate it with that horrible noise. And if we went down to the beach, we'd have to listen to that awful kind of music. That missionary had to remind him and say, Hey, why do we exist in the world? We exist in the world to not take a defensive posture. We exist in the world not to build a city just up on a hill, but the incarnation that we study about at Christmas is the story of a God that sent his beloved son into the world. We're to be in the world, but not of it. And the church of Pergamum is a marvelous illustration of a church that understood what it meant to be in the world, but not of it. A lot of believers are not in the world, but they're of it. In other words, they created their isolated environment. They have their nice little Christian evangelical culture. And yet it's permeated with the world's thinking, with materialism, with immorality, with gossiping, with pride, and on and on it goes. But they think they're really good little Christians because they're totally isolated from the world. God has called us to go into all the... That's right. Go into all the world. We need to build our church where Satan's throne is. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. And we'll look at the third church that we're studying together. It's the church of Pergamum. And this church, according to the Lord Jesus' evaluation, was built right where Satan's throne is. It's Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. To the messenger of the church in Pergamum, write... Remember, we talked about John delivering this marvelous parchment that the Lord had inspired. This marvelous revelation gave it possibly to seven messengers. And he sent these messengers forth. And these messengers went out and they went back to these cities in what is now modern day Turkey. Last time we studied the book of Revelation, we looked at the church of Smyrna. And the message of the church of Smyrna was a message to hang tough in the midst of persecution. But now the messenger leaves Smyrna. He travels about 45 miles north of Smyrna along a beautiful Aegean Sea right along the coast. When he gets about 45 miles north of Smyrna, he turns inland about 15 or 16 miles and he comes up this beautiful Cassiascus Valley. There's a beautiful mountain that rises out of the valley a thousand feet. And as he approaches Pergamum, it's an incredible city. The original city was started about 500 years before Christ came. It was just a small village. But when Alexander the Great conquered the world, and then he died, and his general Lysimachus took over this area, Pergamum was the ideal place to build the preeminent city of Asia Minor, of this part of Asia. And so about 300 years before Christ came to the world, Pergamum became the capital city of what would be modern-day Turkey. 
On top of this thousand-foot mountain, they built incredible worship centers. They didn't build churches where we can come and worship and we can drive around town and we see First Baptist and First Methodist and Oak Crest Baptist and, and the Presbyterian Church and all these expressions of the church. As you move into Pergamum, they decided to build right at the summit of this mountain. There was a big jutting out rock. I mean, it's gigantic. It's just several feet in, in a kind of a big rectangular area. And they built an altar to Zeus in this beautiful rectangular area up on top of that mountain. When you approach the city from far away, you could look and see in the top of this thousand-foot mountain this incredible altar. They would offer thousands of sacrifices to Zeus. And Zeus represented the, the domination of the Greeks. And right there on the edge of the altar was some incredible artwork. I mean, there was artwork that depicted the whole victory of Alexander the Great. In fact, you can go to the University of Berlin and the museum in Berlin and actually see this incredible fresco that outlined the border of this beautiful altar to Zeus. Probably the largest altar to Zeus in the ancient world. But it didn't stop there. You'd go down a little bit farther and you had a beautiful temple to Apollo, another Greek god. You would go a little bit farther and you'd have the main temple. It was what the city was known for. It was the temple of Asclepius. Asclepius started out as an Egyptian physician. He had a great skill in healing, but his cult spread. When he died, his cult spread throughout the ancient world. And throughout the ancient world, they believed that the name Asclepius, who was represented as a serpent, was the god of healing. And Pergamum had a medical school in this temple to Asclepius... People would come from all over the ancient world. They would come to this temple and you would sit in there in the dark and you would pray that a snake would touch you. Well, ladies, can you imagine that? Sitting in this gigantic Asclepius uh, temple and you're praying that a snake will touch you because the folklore went that if you were touched by a serpent, you would be healed. And so the temple of Asclepius was known throughout the ancient world, Galen, who's the medical doctor second only to Hippocrates. You've all heard of the Hippocratic Oath. Galen was the second most preeminent physician in all of the ancient world after Hippocrates. And Galen lived in Pergamon, was born there, founded the university, taught in the medical school of Asclepius there in the ancient world. So it was a center of healing. Gigantic place. It was also a place that had a temple to Dionysius. Dionysus is also known as the god, god Bacchus. And that was the god of wine and frivolity. And just like I've shared with you in the past, this was a Greek city. So in the springtime, they stopped for several weeks. And they would have a gigantic orgy. It was like New Orleans. It was like Mardi Gras in Rio. And they would have people come by the thousands to Pergamum. And they would drink till they were just totally south. They would have immorality. It was a time of the year that, where the hearts of young men turned towards love and romance. Only this was not love and romance. It was lust. Pergamum was known throughout the ancient world for this incredible, gigantic Dionysian feast. Now, God established a church right in the midst of this city. In fact, look at Revelation. It tells us that this is where Satan's throne was. Look what it says. These are the words of him. That's Jesus, who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live. I know where you live. You live where Satan has set his throne. Isn't that incredible? Jesus is going through the church of Pergamon, and first of all, he says, I know where you live. Where do you live? 
From time to time, people come up to me and they say, David, I come to church on Sunday morning and I'm so encouraged. In fact, it's so exciting to be here and, and you know, we've got a lot of believers around us. But, you know, when I go back to my work, when I go back to my place of employment, there's not another believer in all of my business. I mean, Dave, you won't imagine what they did over the New Year's holiday. In fact, it's going to take them till tomorrow morning to recover from what happened on Thursday night. And the basic idea that this believer is telling me is horrors. Can you believe God put me here? Well, I want you to know that God knows where you live. And if that's your testimony, say, I'm in a business where there's not one other believer in all the business. Rather than moaning and groaning, do you realize that the soldier of Jesus Christ, you've been given an incredible, an incredible opportunity. Can you imagine? You're the only light in that business. Lord, help this dear believer to be able by the power of the Spirit to reproduce themselves so that by next year, if the Lord hasn't returned, we're going to be able to rejoice that they're not the only believer where Satan dwells. When I was growing up in Maplewood, New Jersey, with a a whole cross-section of a lot of different religious faiths and everything else, the believers of about maybe three or four high school kids or junior high kids would come out to church on Sunday. That's all there were. But they were secret service Christians during the week. Man, I never saw them at all. I don't know where they disappeared. They were totally gone. And I don't know any believer. Like when we were playing football, Walatorsky, this great big Polish guard, he knew Jesus as the dominant cuss word of his life. I didn't know where the evangelical believers were. It was New Jersey. And that's the way a lot of our kids, they come from high school that don't have dominant evangelical groups. And we need to be encouraging them. Rather than saying, oh, you can't make it, and man, what a horrible thing that in your high school there's no believers. We need to be saying, you're in a strategic place. You're a soldier that's been put right in the heat of the battle. You are where Satan's throne is. Some of you parents say, Dave, how can I make sure my kids live for God? And some of you have adopted the idea that the way you get your kids to live for God is you just make sure they never see Satan's stuff. Just make sure they never hear about Satan's thing. Make sure they never have to go where Satan's people are. And if you can just keep them isolated enough, then they'll be good Christian little kids. You know what's going to happen to them? They're going to grow up in this beautiful, isolated environment, and they're going to be sitting in their little monastery looking out and saying, man, Satan's stuff is really fun. Satan's stuff is really exciting. Man, I like that temple of Asclepius. Mom and dad would never let me go near the door of that. The first chance I get when I go away to the University of Pergamum, I'm hitting for the temple of Asclepius. And when they have that big festival in the spring, I want to go there because I haven't been able to listen to that stuff or hear any of that or, or go there and contact those kids. I'm headed there. You say, Dave, how can I help my kids not to have that attitude? Have an attitude as a family... We've been planted where Satan's throne is. And our goal is that we have the answer. We have life. Jesus is the one that brings really good times. Jesus is the one that brings really abundant life. And we're going to invade Satan's throne. And we're going to aggressively bring the story of Jesus. And people are going to get saved. You go, man, David, that'll just never happen. And I want to understand his parents trying to guard your kids. I'm not talking about letting them get into oceans that they can't swim in. I'm not talking about letting them be exposed to, to temptation that they're not ready to handle yet. 
But I am talking about moms and dads that believe that Jesus can overpower Satan's throne. And we're not going to isolate ourselves from unbelievers. We're not going to isolate ourselves from the needs and the problems that unbelievers have. We're going to have our family up to its armpits in bringing the good news of Christ into unbelievers' lives. And I guarantee you, parents, kids that are raised with moms and dads that are invading Satan's territory and including their kids in that, Mom and dads that are praying for unbelieving associates. Moms and dads that, that are, have their kids exposed to unbelievers that are agonizing over the consequences of sin. You won't have to convince your kids that strongly that sin's not a very good idea. Isolate them and they'll run away from the isolation. Get them involved in the power of the gospel. Let them see what Jesus can do. Let them see you go radically out on the edge because you believe Jesus can meet needs and he can change lives. Build your house where Satan's throne is. That's what we need to be as a church. We need to be constantly thinking of the church. We're built not just to be a city that's up on a hill. We're built to be a group of soldiers that invade Satan's throne with the power of the gospel. Is it dangerous to do that? You bet. If you go out there in your business, if you live for Jesus in your business there's a good chance you'll have a big cost to pay for that. You'll be mocked. You'll be doubted. You might even lose your job. In other words, I think it's really important to realize that if we follow Jesus and we get really serious about living for him, we can expect that we're not going to get some promotions sometimes. We can expect sometimes there's going to be tremendous opposition. In fact, one of the ways to tell whether you're invading Satan's territory is whether or not Satan's really opposing it whether or not you've really got opposition. A lot of believers have the idea, they come to me and they say, Dave, you know, we really had this great idea and we started reaching out and man, as soon as we started reaching out, the roof caved in. Everything started going wrong. This must not be the will of God for us. Baloney. Man, in 25 years, you know what I've learned? When the church looks like it's falling apart, when there's all kinds of personality conflicts, when there's all kinds of screwbally, weirdo feelings taking place, I've learned to say, rejoice, this is great. Man, this is exciting. Because all these nutty, deceptive, satanic things are happening. Man, when I first started out, I got really discouraged when everything looked like it was caving in. But I began to realize that when everything looked like it was caving in and Satan was coming on like gangbusters, it was because we really were invading. When the going gets tough, we're not going to quit. We believe that Jesus is still the power of God and his salvation. In fact, we're going to get excited when it gets tough and our faith is really challenged and we're not sure we can make it. We're going to get flat on our faith before Jesus and say, Jesus, if you don't do your thing, we're done. And boy, the Holy Spirit can make mountains move when we're like that. And that's the excitement of this Christian life. Jesus can do it. And just like the church of Pergamum, he's put us in the midst of a secular society. How many of you would believe that our culture has gone to the dogs? How many of you have had conversations bemoaning the terrible state that the American culture is in? Anybody talk like that? Satan is ruling alive and well. Anybody believe that? Well, rather than whining and griping and talking about we need to change the political party, I want you as believers to say, Jesus, we can be like the church of Pergamum. We're going to plant our military forces for Jesus right where Satan dwells. And we're going to believe. We're going to pray. We're going to motivate our young people. We're going to save kids. And we're going to try to make them so that they get filled with the Spirit instead of filled with deadly heroin. 
Can you believe that can happen? It can make a difference. It really can make a difference. That's the power of Jesus. Do you believe that? If you don't believe that, Clint, stand up. Clint, you were on drugs for a while there, weren't you? Partying? Totally on the other side of the thing. What are you committed to this morning, Clint? Jesus Christ. If you don't believe it, anyone that doesn't believe in the power of Jesus, just look at Clint. I want you to believe we have been planted where Satan's throne is. And Jesus is the answer. Jesus can invade Satan's throne. And he can take a kid that's living for drugs and just living for parties and living in a self-destructive course, and he can turn that kid around. He can powerfully do that and make him shine for the glory of Jesus. That's what the church of Pergamum had. They even lost one of their members because of that. Look what it says. It says, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce the faith in the days when Antipas, my faithful witness. Wouldn't you like Jesus to say that about you? My faithful witness. Antipas, I don't know anything else about Antipas. I don't know who his dad was. I don't know what he did for a living. All that I know is what's written right here. Church tradition is filled in a lot of details from several centuries later. But to be really honest with you, this is the only witness we have of Antipas. Antipas was a faithful witness. And he was put to death in your city where Satan dwells. That's the ultimate sacrifice. Antipas was a believer that started standing up for God in the city of Pergamos. Pergamum. The opposition, the temples of Asclepius, the temple of Zeus, most of all the imperial cult, because that was the biggest temple of all. In 29 BC, Augustus Caesar let Pergamum be the first Asiatic city to build a temple honoring him as God, the god Roma and the god Augustus. In about 28 AD, Tiberius let them build a second temple, Severus, another emperor let them build another third temple there were three imperial emperor temples where they worship the god of rome the god of the emperor and so in this city you were you could not get away from the from the roman empire's demand to worship them as god and evidently antipas when he was called upon to declare his allegiance to the roman emperor said no and they, maybe it was a crowd violence, because as far as we know, at this time, he was the only one that was killed, which is unusual when there's a trial. So possibly mob violence broke out, just like with the martyr Stephen in the early chapters of Acts. And Antipas gave his life for Jesus. Have you ever been in a church family that has martyrs that are part of their church family? I got to speak at Calvary Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. When I was done, Chet Bitterman's brother came up to me. Chet Bitterman was a Wycliffe missionary down in Central America, was captured and was executed for the, because of his commitment to Jesus. And what an experience it was to have Chet's own brother come and say, Dave, I want to share with you about my brother and to share about his brother's call to the mission field and his desire to go down there and proclaim the gospel. The horror of getting the news that he'd been captured and then the worse horror of finding out that your brother had given his life the ultimate sacrifice. This isn't religion. This isn't nice, nice church. This is for keeps. This is the real thing. We need to be willing to put our lives in the line. It doesn't mean that all of us are going to have to give our life, but if we're going to be a faithful witness, this is very similar to the kind of commitment that you all that have been in the military were asked to give when you were sworn in to the military service. You were asked 
to make the ultimate commitment. If needs be, you would give your life for your cause to defend your country. That's what a soldier is all about. And we rejoice in all of you that have done that to help to make us safe. Jesus is that same kind of commanding officer. And the church of Pergamum illustrates that this family needed to understand we're not talking about religion, we're talking about final allegiances, final calls. We're talking about people that are willing to lay their life on the line for the sake of Jesus. And God's going to ask some of you parents to let your kids go away. You say, Dave, how do you know that? Because he's asked me to do it. He's asked many of you to do it. What we need to realize is, you know, we've raised our kids from the time they were small. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Antipas was one that was ready to give his life on the line. I remember my dad down in Argentina speaking to a group about like this. Only they were all college students. And my dad was speaking to them one hour. And there was a missionary there from the jungles of Venezuela and Colombia that had just returned from those jungles And one of the Word of Life missionaries reaching out to these Indians had just been killed by the guerrillas. When he went on one of his trips out to one of the Indian villages, the guerrillas nabbed him, threw him in the river, and this young husband had lost his life for the sake of God, Ramirez. My dad was preaching this mission conference. This other missionary speaker just constantly challenged, we need some other young people to go up to that river and to take his place. And hundreds of these young people stood up, and my dad was eating with them, and through a translator, he got together with some of the young men that were getting ready to go and to take the place in Venezuela and Colombia and working among thousands of Indians that were reached for Jesus. And my dad said to them, Hey, guys, you know, somebody just lost their lives. There's gorillas in that area. You could lose their life. And they looked at him with this most perplexed attitude. They just looked at him puzzled, And then they said to the translator, so, so, what do you expect? Isn't that what happened in the New Testament? Isn't that what what it's cost down to the centuries? They said, man, we're ready to go. And they did go. And that ministry is now blowing and going. They established a Bible institute. And and now they've got several Indians that are trained to pastor these several hundred churches. And God is working through the blood of martyrs. He reaches out to many, many more. That's what this church had. Now, that's a great church. Here's a church invading Satan's territory. Here's a church that had a martyr in their midst. I would expect you just to go, follow the example of that church. But the thing I love about the Lord Jesus is he really shoots straight to you. And I've talked to you about something really important. I've talked to you about invading Satan's territory. That's where our church needs to be. I've talked to you about having martyrs, if that's what the Lord calls us to. There's always a danger in a church that's living where Satan's throne is. If your young people are out there trying to reach unbelieving kids, that's where they need to be. But you need to realize there's a danger there as well. If you're involved with your unbelieving friends at work, you need to realize that you need to be involved with them, but there's a great danger of being in a situation that could get very dangerous. And look what happened to the church. It wasn't Antipas that lost his life that caused this church problem. And that's very interesting. It wasn't the guy that lost his life physically and the threat of physical hurt that really hurt this church. It was something that happened from within. Look at the next verse, verse 14. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I have a few things, just a small number of things against you. You have some individuals there in your church who hold to the teaching of Balaam. 
Balaam is the one that taught Balak, the Midianite, to entice the Israelites to sin, eating food sacrificed to idols, and by getting them to commit sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Here was a great church. It was a church that was living right where Satan's throne was. They had a martyr in their midst. They were a faithful witness. But you know what they were doing? They were starting to compromise with the idolatrous temples. You say, Dave, what did they do? You see, they began to realize it's tough to live a pure life for Jesus. You see, everybody in this city, like when we had the big spring festival, the big Mardi Gras, it was what everyone did. Everybody would go and worship Asclepius or Dionysius, Apollo, Aphrodite. They would worship all these different gods. Everyone did it. All your associates from school, all your associates from work, everybody would be there. And they would worship these gods. And most of them didn't take the gods that seriously anyway. And it would open up some good opportunities to move ahead in your culture. And also, everybody in this culture committed sexual immorality. You see, in the Greek culture, you can have, like, for example, the great orator, Demosthenes, of Greek oratory fame. He's the ultimate speaker in Greece. You can read what Demosthenes says. Demosthenes says, Who would ever think that young men will not go to prostitutes? From the beginning of our culture... In antiquity, as far back as you can go, all of our young men have learned the exploits of what human sexuality is by getting involved with prostitutes. And that's the way they learn their trade. And what religion could ever be so strict and so limited and so stringent as to keep young people in the height of their virility from learning about sex with prostitutes? That's what the greatest orator of Greek thinking declared about sexual mores, homosexuality. Socrates is the ultimate teacher of Greek philosophy. He had what's called the symposium. He got together with several of his friends and they decided they would have a whole big discussion on sexuality. And so they went one after another around the table. They drank till they were totally soused, but the Greeks evidently held their liquor pretty good. So they began to have one after another give declarations of love. It's some of the most beautiful love poetry that's ever been written. And when Socrates begins to speak, he takes the commitment of love to one of its highest places in pagan literature. Only they're not talking about the love between a man and a woman. They're talking about the love of an older professor for his young boys that are his students. They're talking about an older man that, that makes love sexually, makes lust sexually to younger boys. Does that sound a little bit familiar about where our society is heading? Well, I want you to know that our society is not just heading there. Our society's already been there. So young people, when you're told, there's nothing wrong with homosexuality. You need to let and let live. Everyone has their own identity. There's nothing wrong with expressing your sexuality. There's nothing wrong with, with trying out the different parts of your body and learning to explore with that. That's the new progressive wave. There's nothing new. There's nothing progressive about that. That's what everybody believed at Pergamum. You know what the tragedy was? Some of the believers started to believe it too. And that can be the tragedy in our own church right here. You say, Dave, what's all this Balaam stuff? Well, Balaam and Balak was that weird story. Remember where the Lord had, where Balak the king 
was sitting in the plains of Moab, and he's looking at two million people. And there's some really powerful warriors, and he's scared out of his willies, and he realizes he can't conquer these people. And so he scratches his head, and he remembers that way up on the Euphrates River, there's a man of God. He's a legitimate man of God. The Spirit of God comes upon him, and he actually gives revelation. So Balak says, go get Balaam and come down here. Three times Balaam wouldn't go because God told him not to go. You can't curse my people. You can't curse the Israelites. They're my chosen people. I'm going to bless them. That's the covenant I made with Abraham. So Balaam tells Balak's emissaries, I'm not going. I'm not going. I'm not going. Three times. The third time he says, okay, I'll go. But I can't say anything different than what God says. And that's where you have the famous story as he's riding his donkey and as he's coming down towards the plains of Moab, the angel of God confronts him and God lets the stupid donkey see this angel of God who's going to kill Balaam and the the donkey speaks. That's that strange story. And you say, well, I don't really believe that could ever happen. Well, man, it's a miracle that some of you speak. So don't think too bad about a donkey that can speak. Man, the art of the Lord God of heaven gave us tongues and, you know, he gave us the ability to speak. If he wants the donkey to deliver his message, I always remember that. You know, whenever, and when some, I, I take great comfort in that because if the Lord can use a donkey like he used for Balaam, then he can use me. Isn't that great to know that? Man, the Lord can use even this dumb animal. And I take great encouragement in that week by week when I speak to you. I say, Lord, just do your thing through this dumb donkey. The donkey warns Balaam, and Balaam has to repent in sackcloth and ashes because he's beaten the tart of his, his animal. But Balaam arrives. He arrives at the Moabite encampment. Balak says, all right, get up before the people. And Balaam begins to prophesy in the name of the Lord. And it's some of the most incredible blessings that you ever have on the nation of Israel. It's in Numbers where you have the star will rise from Jacob, and the, the star the wise man sees is predicted by this stupid mercenary Balaam who's half compromising with everything you can imagine, but God's still speaking through him. And every time Balaam opens his mouth, he gives a bigger blessing on the Israelites. It's a great story of the way God is going to bless his people. At the end of it, Balaam says, man, I'm not going to pay you. You've done just the opposite I want you to do. And Balaam says, I got an idea. You want to get these people? You can't ask me to speak direct cursings against God's people. But I got a neat idea. You know what? If you'll get some of your really sharp Midianite girls, deck them out in the most beautiful Moabite seductive desert apparel you can find. And you march them into the Israelite camp, and then you get your greatest musician in the world, you march them in, and you have a great big party with the Israelites, and you seduce the Israelites with the daughters of Midian, and you get them to bow down to their gods, and then you get them to have sexual relationships. You know what? God will judge his people. And that's exactly what happened. The book of Numbers, chapter 25, and later on in chapter 31, it tells us where the plan happened. Numbers 25, verses 1 and 2, said that the daughters of Midian went in among the sons of Israel. The sons of Israel lusted after them. They entered into relationships with those that did not believe in Yahweh God, and they worshipped the gods of Moab. And a great curse, 25,000 25, Israelites died because of Balaam's seduction, because of his compromising suggestion. It's a weird part of that story. Phineas takes his javelin, 
One of the leaders, one of the princes of Israel is sleeping, having intercourse with one of the Midianite girls. And Phineas goes in and throws a javelin right through both of them. Boy, I'm glad I live in the New Testament, aren't you? But you know, as New Testament believers, a lot of you are taught from religious teachers that say, let's forget about that Old Testament. Let's forget about that God that would be that strong and that stringent and come out with such strong judgment against sin. I want you to know something. The only reason the javelin doesn't pierce our hearts is because Jesus died. And Jesus took the javelin of the punishment of sin for us. But don't you ever feel as a believer, like if you're alone with a woman that doesn't belong with you, guys, don't you ever think, well, I'm just a believer. God will forgive and forget. Because you're mocking the cross of Jesus when you do that. You're saying, I could care less that Jesus shed his blood to set me free from this stuff. Do you realize, brothers and sisters, that there's absolutely no difference statistically between the morals of an evangelical church and totally secular people? There's no difference at all. Statistically, we have no moral standing in our culture. You know why? Because we believe the teaching of Balaam. And we live in a culture that says that you can be impure sexually, that you can experiment sexually. If you're, if you're single adults that have been in one marriage relationship that didn't work out, and you're now free and loose, everybody knows that adults that are single again, everyone knows they're going to be immoral. Don't you believe that for a second, singles? Everyone knows in our culture, they say young people can't control themselves. Young people don't believe that. Don't believe that. Javelins plunge through lives day in and day out. Day in and day out because of the compromise of Balaam. We live in a culture that just thinks that sin doesn't make any difference. That sin doesn't have any effects. And sin does. It, it hurts. It destroys. God hates immorality. You say, Dave, why in the world does God hate immorality so much? Because he's like a medical doctor that looks at all of our lives and he realizes that immorality is like a cancer. Idolatry is like a cancer that permeates your life. And immorality is like a religion. When you young people go out and you're tempted and you're attracted to somebody of the opposite sex that's really beautiful and really makes you feel like you're on heaven, then all the teaching that I've given you, if you're not committed now and you say, man, I'm going to nail down some roots, I'm not going to marry an unbelieving person that doesn't know Jesus. The first thing I want to know in a dating relationship is where do they stand with my precious Savior because that's the core of my life. If you monkey with that and say, no, I'm going to just date anybody. If it's an unbelieving person, it doesn't make any difference. I'll wait till we're six months into the relationship. You're going to end up marrying unbelievers. And by God's grace, he might eventually bring that family together but many times you'll spend a lifetime trying to get the core of your married life where it needs to be. As adults, be really careful about entering into deep sexual relationships with people that don't know Jesus, with someone that doesn't belong to you. We live in a culture now, you know what it used to be? In order for you guys to look at pornography, which is pure idolatry, what you guys do and what ladies do in our culture now, when you look at pornography... When you're looking at the pictures, you're declaring all that devotion to a phantom that Satan has created before you 
and you're just exactly like those ancient Pergamese that were bowing to the serpent of Asclepius. It's exactly the same thing. Or exactly the same thing as a young Greek guy that went into the temple and went into a temple prostitute. Only with pornography, you just do the whole thing in your mind. Something that we as believers need to realize. Do we think the Pergamese lived where Satan's throne is? Counselors are telling me that one of the plagues in the evangelical community today is hundreds of evangelical men that late at night or when their wives aren't around that are getting on the internet and there without anybody ever knowing it in the total privacy of your thought life you're able to see pictures that guys used to have to travel miles to get to see that kind of degradation and filth. Men realize that Balaam lies. That those moral standards that he lowered as he brought in foreign women, and you ladies, the same thing, as Satan seeks to attract you, it's time for the evangelical community to say, that's enough. We're going to believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he set us free from Midianite women. He set us free from unbelieving men. And we're not going to get our hide, we're not going to get our kicks from illicit desires. Instead, we're going to be pure sexually. We're going to maintain, from the time we're just young teenagers, we're going to maintain holy friendships. From the time that we're just young people, we're going to maintain the barriers. We're going to have commitments to the woman, to the man that God gives to us. And we're going to look upon it as a death trap, a javelin throw to turn away from that. Some of you are sitting there and saying, Dave, I have been trapped by idolatry. The meaning of my life has been my material things. The meaning of my life has been that truck, that car, that house. I've been worshiping those things. I know it. Some of you are saying, David, man, right now I'm going after an illicit love. I remember years ago working with a dear, precious guy. He was skilled in Bible teaching, knew Hebrew as well as I did. And he would sit in my office and we would talk like I'm talking right now. And he would actually get off out of that chair in my study, walk out into the night, and go and sleep with a dirty, disease-filled whore. Literally. And his wife would come into the office right after that, just bawling her eyes out. But one night, driving a truck, he heard, are you living in an old man's rubble? Are you listening to the father of lies? If you are, you're headed for trouble. If you listen too long, you'll eventually die. And my precious friend heard these words, repent, repent. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and I will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you'll overcome these things, if you rely upon my power, then I'm going to give you not just the manna the Old Testament Israelites got. got, I'm going to give you spiritual manna. I'll come and live inside of you. Jesus, the bread of life, will give you strength day by day. I'm going to give you a white stone, which was used in the ancient world to get into good parties. In order to get into the party of the ancient world, you had to often give an entrance ticket, a white stone. Jesus says, I'm not going to give you some cheap, thrilling story on a party in an illicit temple. I'll give you a white stone that gives you entrance to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And finally, he says, I'll give you a new name. I'm going to write a new name on, your, on, on you. And no one's going to know that name. No one will be able to have the relationship with me that you have. I'll have an individual, eternal relationship with you that'll be your own special relationship with the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Jesus comes before us and he said, choose. You've got to choose. 
What does it mean to repent? It means you've been walking on this way. Some of you have been walking towards illicit relationships. Some of you have allowed your mind to be filled with pornography. Some of you have allowed, you know, the more acceptable sins like materialism and stuff like that, and you've been walking this way. And the Lord says, turn around. Turn around. Open your arms to Calvary. Don't listen to what Balaam's saying. Don't listen to those friends that are counseling you to lower moral standards. Instead, look at your Savior. Look at the nail print in his hand and says, by the grace of God, I'm going to allow his power to move within me so that I will live strong and pure, committed to him. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, by faith, to believe that you can found a church right in the heart of satanic territory. That you can give us courage even to be willing to risk our lives for the sake of Christ. For the sake of love, because we want other people to hear the good news. I really want to ask you, Lord, that you will set some of my brothers free. Set my eyes free from illicit lust. Set some of my sisters free from the incredible pull of companionship that has slipped a friendship that's turned from friendship into false sexual desires. Lord, I ask you that you would deliver some of us that are listening to music and we're worshiping words that are not the words of Christ. We're listening to messages and we're, we're bowing before them. We're believing that the messages are true. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to make a commitment that when it comes to music and entertainment and things like that, that we're going to evaluate it based upon your holy word. And we're going to listen to what Philippians 4, 6 says. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are of good report, whatsoever things are strong and communicating virtue, those are the things that we're going to allow to control our minds. Lord, really opening our heart to letting you in our personal relationship with you teach us what brings honor to you, what is true, what's going to last forever. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.